and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's guest is Andrew Horton, Group CEO of QBE Insurance. His job is to run a global insurer and reinsurer that writes over $20 billion in gross premium that originates from almost every market in the world. The business has just posted a very solid set of results and at the same time issued guidance for this good run to continue in 2023. Andrew has been in post for around 18 months and in this podcast it becomes clear that he's had enough time in charge to start to execute some of his own vision. It's not wholesale change but it's quietly radical. QBE has been built and integrated by his predecessors over the last 20 years so the job today is not about filling gaps with acquisitions. The group is already global and hugely diversified. Today's job is about optimising the business's global processes, products and people to create a consistently profitable and innovative firm that can continue to grow organically. This is clearly easier said than done, particularly in a business run as three divisions and present in almost every time zone on the planet. And that's the core of the interview today. Andrew is a very thoughtful and very accessible leader. His ideas on how to make a large global business more cohesive, coherent and consistent, while at the same time being fast-paced, nimble and efficient, are extremely valuable. He's trying to bring a small enterprise mindset to a huge global insurance group, and that's a radical goal to try and pursue. From today's talk, I wouldn't bet against him. I can highly recommend a close listen. Enjoy the podcast. Andrew, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. It's great to be with you, Mark. We were chatting just before I hit the record button. We were looking at some of the questions I'd prepared for you, and we were talking about reinsurance, so people talk about it too much. But I want to talk about reinsurance because it's one of the things that's happening at the moment. Reinsurance has reset itself. I just want to ask, you're a very big insurer. You're also a reinsurer. How's this reinsurance reset that one one affected your strategy? Or has it not affected it? Okay, obviously, we've got two things, so buying the reinsurance and obviously selling reinsurance. So yeah. from a buying reinsurance point of view, I think we put a lot of thought into where the reinsurance market was going to go last year, starting in sort of spring 2022, where we did an RFP for our reinsurances. And therefore, what actually happened on January the 1st for our purchase of reinsurance was almost exactly in line with plan, probably closer to plan than I've seen in a number of years. So despite retentions going up and pricing going up and adjustment for valuations, we built that into our plan. And therefore, we'd also built into our 2023 plan the impact we have to ensure happens on our insurance to cover the increased reinsurance costs. It was very much a chronicle foretold, wasn't it? But yeah, it I was, suppose it so often it had been a chronicle foretold where reinsurers had been protesting for many previous renewals, uh, but had ended up capitulating at 3112. But this time, it was all absolutely signposted, and then it was actually fulfilled. Yeah. But did the actual fulfillment of it surprise you? No, not at all. I think we've got deep relationships with a number of reinsurers, and we spoke to them in the autumn time, and they delivered exactly what they said they would, which was fine. It means you can actually plan around it. No surprises for us. It's in line with what we expect. You're right. I think what's happened is in earlier years, there was a bit of capitulation, and now they're sort of caught up with that ideal world. It should have probably repriced over a number of years, slightly higher, so we didn't have such a major repricing on Jan 1, 23. And obviously, you were also in touch with the market because you're a substantial reinsurer, not I think you're not the world's sure. biggest reinsurer, but, but there's a substantial amount of reinsurance income in your book. But first thing, when I was looking at your annual results, for example, 
QB reads, obviously, reasonable size part of it. Yeah. People, you wouldn't be able to tell necessarily from looking at those results, obviously, maybe as you're presenting those to the investor. Is that saying anything about QB read or not? Because at the same time, I know this time last year, you were saying that reinsurance is in growth mode and you were quite bullish about the reinsurance side of things. Yes. So Mark, the way we tend to present our results other than the total is the three divisions of international, North America and OSPAC. And QBE re is a subset of the international. So it, it's not special treatment for not flagging QBE re because none <laughs> of the subsets get talked about. So we just tend to do it on that basis. QBE re is about 10% of our premiums, has been growing. It's got a good focus and good balance between property cat liability and specialty. So that's good. It's probably downplayed property cat a bit in 2023. It has been a challenging market. And I think we're more in a let's wait and see where the market's actually going to go. And if there's an opportunity in 24 to grow, then we'll continue to grow. But it is an important part of what QBE does. I think we end up being sort of the 25th largest reinsurer in the world. So a reasonable size. Those rankings. Exactly, a reasonable size. I think we can grow, but as you can imagine, the graph sort of falls away quite quickly from the top three or four into a number of mid-sized reinsurers, and we're in that. But it is an area we're focused on. Change in leadership last year with Chris Calori taking that on, and is an area we want to grow going forwards. Well, I think I must get him on the show, actually. So you're happy to be leaning into that harder insurance market and picking up your share of the good we news are, there. We are, but we have decided from property cat generally that we're not going to grow enormously into 2023. It's been an area for the past few years. People believe the rating is now right. And sadly, claims have actually kept up with the increased pricing. Pricing has now gone up a lot, always going up a lot in 23. And we'd just rather hold capacity flat deploy our capacity as well as we possibly can, um, ideally get some other lines on the back of deploying uh, property capacity, both on the reinsurance and insurance front. One of the main drivers of it is QBE as a company has had quite a lot of volatility in the results over the past 10 years. And one of my strategies is try to remove that volatility going forwards. Is that one of the reasons behind getting out of retro? There were reports about that. Exactly right. It was the most volatile part of our book, and it was a relatively small part, and we're such a small player in it, and it just gives us volatility with some of the large losses that can happen. So why do it? And I'm pleased because we move quickly on it. Yeah. And when you've got a market that is giving you all the opportunity in normal reinsurance, sure. yeah, why do that? to be reinsuring reinsurers. I agree. Certainly, anecdotally, in Q1, we've seen that this reinsurance second wind, because we used to talk about the reinsurance tail wagging the dog. The insurance dog has been quite happily wagging itself for yeah. the last four years, either being you know, provoked by some of the larger players, or perhaps you could say it was Lloyd's and AIG together kind of almost started to trigger that. But it was going to have to happen because results needed to be remediated one way or another. And now we've got this added impetus from reinsurance. It seems to have given an extra push in property, but is that having secondary effects elsewhere? I'm not sure the property cap markets having secondary effects elsewhere. I think the level of inflation and uncertain geopolitical issues are keeping rates up. And it's not that long ago since social inflation kicked in and we had all those claims for the mid-2010s and we're still paying for those. So I think it's a combination of those factors, Mark, that are actually maintaining rates rather than the property cat. And in some areas, we are seeing rates come off. So management liability, especially in the US last year, saw rates come off because within two or three years of good rate increases in inverted commas, of course, we only prove with hindsight whether they're large enough to cover potential increased claims more capacity coming into play. The cyber market, to some extent, in 2023, topping out a bit, but having seen rates double, treble, quadruple over the past few years, and at some point, capacity comes back into the market and rates top out. And 23 and 24, we will see more rates top out. 
And certainly from your own results, you see a tapering, obviously not rates falling, but a tapering in the rate of increase. Exactly right. Yeah. So the rate of increase, we're expecting inflation to be a bit lower, which is also going to potentially slow the rate of increase. But yeah, it's going, to, it's going to taper this year and into next year, and that's definitely what we're planning for. But do you think there'll still be material increases above inflation or above loss cost? I can't see it in many areas other than the property cap, and it's hard to tell whether they're materially above loss costs because they're actually trying to catch up with where loss costs are. I mean, it's an interesting one on that area. We were speaking to a broker in New York a couple of weeks ago who was saying there are no states in the US that are not cat exposed anymore. Having had the winter storm the early this year, wasn't it? It impacted 30 states. It used to be sort of down the eastern seaboard and the earthquake states, and now almost any state can be impacted by something. So we're going to think we've got to think in a slightly different way. Yes. So are you feeling optimistic? I mean, that doesn't sound incredibly bullish. It doesn't sound like you're completely gung-ho, but are you happy that you're in an adequately priced market into which you can still grow? I think what I'm happy about is we're getting good balance in the book. Without doing an advertising campaign on QBE, the great beauty about the business, which I found in the past 18 months, is a third of the business is run out of Australia, a third is run out of London here, the international business, and a third run out of New York. So we should be able to get good balance. And that's in property cat across the world but also property cap and casualty, liability and specialty. And that's what our focus is on. So it's good to have property cap being rated as well as it may have been for a number of years. It's the right thing to do. And then how do we get that balanced with our casualty and specialty books? Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com, and I'll do everything I can to get you started. Also in those results, there were some increases in back-year reserves. Is that mostly because of inflation? Yeah, so we did some on inflation where we took in some of the longer tail lines and increased in prior reserves. But it's also some of our historic books where we've seen claims continue to increase. So I mentioned the mid-2010s in financial lines. We continue to see those claims get higher from what we originally planned them to be and some of the discontinued businesses we have. That is one of the reasons, and you may want to talk about, is the NSTAR lost portfolio transaction Absolutely. that we've done to try and remove some of the business from the back books. That's a pretty big buffer, isn't it? That can give you a lot of confidence and yeah. say, well, we probably won't have to hear from that again. Yeah. So it's $1.9 billion of reserves of our $16 billion. So it's quite a large proportion of our reserves we've put into this transaction. And it's looking at financial lines from 2018 and earlier, both international and the US, and some of the discontinued businesses. And they've been books that have delivered 100% of our PYD on average over the past five or six years. PYD? Prior development. Yeah. Sorry about that. I hate <laughs> using three-letter acronyms as well. So apologies. I'm sure that was a song by Michael Jackson. Yeah, no, exactly. thriller album, wasn't it? No, but... It probably was. But yeah, no, prior development. Also, another thing from your results, I don't want to turn this into some sort of results analysis, but at the same time, you know, I did have a good look at them because it was a very interesting read. I mean, obviously, they're pretty good results, by the way, as well. Program business, it's interesting. You seem to be pulling away from program business. That There were certainly discontinued lines there or discontinued contracts, and you weren't really growing. But I find that interesting in the context of what seems to be a booming market for everybody else. So are you seeing something that other people aren't? First of all, I'd say thanks for reading the results, Mark. 
That's really cheering that you've read them. So I really, I really <laughs> well, appreciate it, that. I, actually, it was a very good read. It, it wasn't depressing at all. Yeah, it didn't have too many PYD comments in there, so uh, so it was supposed to be as clear as possible. So that, that's good. No, I think on the program book, when I came in and we looked at the programs, especially some of the ones, the catastrophe exposed programs we've been writing in the US, we'd been optimistic that they could be remediated and deliver good profits going forwards. And several of them had been underwater from a combined ratio over a number of years. So our view is we should pull our capacity back from that if we are going to reduce the volatility of the overall group and North American numbers. So no, still committed to programs. It's still hundreds of millions of dollars that the group actually writes, but we want to write programs that can deliver profitability over the medium to long term. Keen to support them and have written some new ones over the past year or two. I was wondering what your professional view would be on that boom that seems to be happening, and particularly with these fronting and hybrid carriers and all sorts of things that seems to be a great flowering of new businesses at the same time putting on quite quickly many billions of dollars of premium seems to be quite a phenomenon. Yeah, I think it's tough to grow aggressively profitably. So I'm not keen to support things that grow that quickly. And also have a view that if we can do it ourselves, why wouldn't we underwrite it ourselves? But if we can find third parties that can access the business more efficiently than we can, and there are many of them that can, I'd rather support those. The partnership's really important to me, that there is some sort of alignment between how they perform and how we perform. And in some cases, that alignment has been a lot less than it should be. Right. Okay. So it's always about that added distribution or added knowledge or just a way of getting into something. You wouldn't do it unless unless you thought you couldn't do it yourself. There's no point in supporting one that's actually competing with us or something we could actually do. Net zero. This is a big topic. Sure. And it's one of your priorities. This yep. is from your own report. I mean, there, there were sort of six pillars, and then there are three new priorities for the, right. that I've seen for this year. I'm quoting, the, I think, the specific words are to foster an orderly and inclusive transition to net zero. I'd love to pick your brains about where do you even start? No, fine. So you're right, just to talk about the three. So we've got our six key strategic priorities. And then we have ESG, and within that, we've got three pillars. The orderly transition to net zero having a sustainable workforce, thinking about all the people who work at QB, and then investing both from an underwriting and investment point of view in things that are going to help the planet in the future. So the first one, the orderly transition to net zero, we were proud to be the first Australian insurer to sign up to the Net Zero Insurance Alliance. It was mainly a European-based set of insurers. Is that a subset of a part of the UN? Uh, yes, that's yes. right. So, yes. But it was, it was driven mainly by European insurers and reinsurers. Prior to this, we'd already signed up to the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, looking at investments. And they've done a lot of good work trying to come up with protocols of how we should assess emissions from our various clients. And now we're in this period of, by the end of, I think it's August this year, we've actually come up with one metric that we're going to track, and then in a year's time, two more metrics. So how do we actually track this transition to Net Zero between now and 2050? And it obviously, it won't be we don't track anything. And then 2049, we've come up with a measure. It's going to be over a period of years. So I feel really good about doing that. So you'll see us come out with something later on this year. And the definition of net zero for an insurer is that you're net zero so that you fly around an electric plane or something by 2050. Well, yeah, and we work with our clients to be net zero. <laughs> and you're insuring net zero so that your clients are all net zero. Exactly. That form of it's obviously more straightforward for us as a company can be net zero because we are not a massive emitter. We're not in a sector that's emitting a lot of greenhouse gases. So we're working with our clients and we do write a reason amount of oil and gas. We write a reason amount of aviation and marine and in motor and those are sectors that are in focus. So we'll be working with our clients to ensure they're on a net zero transition. How do we actually help them on that net zero transition? Then showing certain metrics at some point in the future when we can of how we're seeing that number 
shrink to net zero. The real challenge, Mark, is actually how to do it. How do we actually get at these numbers? It's hard to do. Some of the larger public companies are obviously very clearly on a path to net zero. But we've got, I don't know, 100,000 clients, and we've got to work out some way of assessing how they're all doing. And of course, we don't want complete mayhem that we're talking to them. Every other insurer in the world is talking to them. Every broker's talking to them. So we actually want to try and join it up and be coordinated in it and still ensure it's a competitive market. So we've got to ensure we do everything right. And you're a core part of the global insurance market in London, in, in, in North America, in, in Asia Pacific. And obviously, you're sitting on all sorts of committees and talking to regulators all over the world. What chance do you think we've got, as an industry anyway, of getting our own house in order on this? before something gets imposed upon us. It seems almost inevitable that something will if we don't do anything. Yeah, I think you're right. And therefore, that's why I think the NZA is doing a great job because we're informing regulators around the world what we're doing. We make it very transparent how we're thinking about it. The issuance of the protocols in January was really good. So I think this is a way of avoiding it. The challenge we've got is only a subset of insurers and reinsurers. So quite a lot of insurers and reinsurers who are not signed up to the NZIA and are doing something independently and it would be good to be a bit more coordinated on it. You'd be encouraging other people to say, look, this is the kind of JPEG of... Yes, I think, I think <laughs> of, so. Of, you know, of, it's so of clear. insurance, right? Yeah, yeah, so clear and so transparent. So why don't we do it together? So you'd really be encouraging other people to say, join up with the NZIA. I would. Because it's presumably it's not really a competitive advantage one way or another. We're not going to compete on this. We just need to comply. I agree, especially on the first one. I mean, there may be a competitive advantage of thinking of new underwriting products to help yeah. the world transition and new investment opportunities, which is exciting. And I'm sure we'll all go our separate ways on that. But on getting the world to a net zero place, yeah, I don't think it's yeah, and, so I don't think measurement it's that and proof of what you're doing. Then we might as well have just agree on one and just, you know, a bit like with cord standards. We finally seem to have got there with the IT standards for insurance that everyone's accepted and London has now accepted that, yeah, why not? The cord's been there for the last 30 years. We could have just used that. And the aim of the insurance industry is helping clients achieve it. We're not trying to do anything difficult. This is a positive thing to work with our clients to achieve net zero. So we're playing a key supporting and advising role to them. Must be a very interesting side now, particularly when you get into the coal face of things, probably literally the coal face. When you're having a loss, whereas perhaps 20 years ago, you'd be arguing about whether it was new for old and whether there's a certain amount of betterment. But these days, the betterment might actually entail replacing a coal-fired power station with something with else. something else. Yeah, sure. It could be It's probably that. more expensive. It or, could be that. I'm not sure we've quite got there yet, but that's exactly yeah. right, isn't it? It's, it's helping clients think like that. Well, the green clauses seem to be sort of, I suppose these are going to be the product innovations, even for the most traditional sides of insurance products, and or perhaps also refurbishment and repair rather than just getting a new one, because there's a carbon consequence yes. of you know a new turbine blade that's made of very expensive steel that's very carbon-heavy product, etc., whereas you actually could send someone in there and actually replace the two bits that have fallen off. You're exactly right. What about your vision for QBE more generally? QBE has been a huge operation that has been built over a good couple of decades. It was always on the front foot, a lot of M&A, a lot of acquisition. When you look at QB, is it finished? Is this now a finished project? Is it more your job is to optimise it, to remediate the bits of it and keep that empire of QBE in great condition and growing? Is the job done in terms of what it is, that, that entity? Has it been constructed? Or do you keep thinking, actually, we need to put another bit, there's another bolt that needs to be bolted on? Mark, that's a great question. So looking briefly at the history of QBE, which you've outlined, between 2000 and 2010, we acquired a lot of companies. 
I've heard it could be up to 150 companies acquired throughout the world. And 2010 to 2020 was an integration, some remediation of what we'd actually acquired. Yeah. And that took a long time. So there was virtually no growth in the company over that decade as we focused very much on that, particularly in the US. And I think I may have joined the company when most of that has been done. We've done a bit more, the lost portfolio transfer we've done, selling a broker last year. So small bits and pieces, but generally I think the company is in good shape. If I was focusing on one thing, it would be we've got great people with great expertise throughout the world, but we don't use it as well as we could. So we've run as three independent divisions, OSPAC, International here from London and North America, and they've shared very limited ideas, problem solving, product information and knowledge. And I would really like to build on that because we have got great knowledge of almost every PNC product somewhere within the QBE world, but we don't use it as much as we can. And that's what we've been really focused on. I was fortunate when I arrived in September 21 that we have a relatively new group executive committee who want to think in this style. So Todd, Sue, Jason are the three people who run the divisions, and they are talking to each other a lot about how they share ideas rather than each of them solving the same problem. I suppose that the obvious things are like time difference. I'm trying to book in a podcast over Zoom. It's going to be obviously with someone in Australia. And it is quite hard work. It's sort of, you know, will I be the one get up at 6am or will you be the one staying late at 7pm? It's either sort of one or the other. There's not a huge amount of time in which you can interact with someone. And it must be even worse if you're on the East Coast of North America. That must be even harder to interact as well because you're probably fully 12 hours. Do you think it's natural that being genuinely global in the way that only QBE really is because you're filling in that Pacific time zone that where a lot of people have a gap? Yeah. Is it just natural that you end up being sort of siloed, you know, describing perhaps silos? Presumably, now there are ways around that with technology. Yeah, there are. I think that you're right with the technology. You're exactly right with the time zone. So I knew where Australia was on the globe before I'd moved there. Obviously, I'd been there a number of times. But when you're there, it's not the distance you're away, it's the time zone, which really has a big impact on you. So I regularly, almost always, have early morning calls and late evening calls. And that's a combination of the US and the UK. And in the afternoon, it's quite hard to talk to the UK and the US because they tend to be both asleep. So you can't speak to them for various points of the day. And that has been the biggest challenge. Technology really helps, which is good. So you can now see everybody. And I think one of the things I would like to say is the Australian approach is we are generous on time to almost everybody else in the world. So we are the ones who get up early and go to bed late more than anybody else. Well, it's just your fault because you're stuck in the middle of Pacific. <laughs> we're there. We're there. So we need to do that. We need to do that. And it's interesting. So I talk at the executive committee in Australia, where I either go first thing in the morning or end of the day. The US has first thing in the morning, one part, middle of the day. And the UK, I think, has end of the day and middle of the day. So we're the ones that truly burning the candle at both ends of being beginning and end. But that's, I think, it's just part and parcel of how we operate. We're trying to fly less, I mean, back to the carbon footprint. So we're ensuring we're not flying the whole executive committee and other leadership around the world as much as we used to. So but technology, have, no, have not got a private jet. No, flying Qantas a lot, which is fine. So I'm doing that from Australia. But you're right, the technology helps, but you've got to be, you have relatively short, sharp windows of a couple of hours. So the executive committee meets a couple of hours every two weeks, beginning of the end of the day in Australia, and it's working well. We are bringing people together, and then every now and then we get together. So we're meeting as a management team maybe three times a year. 
I just did a recording with John Neal, and he was actually reminiscing about that time as your predecessor. He was saying, yeah, Monday morning was great because it was sort of you could hear a pin drop. There was no one was sort of going to bother you on a Monday morning. But then, <laughs> That's right. But then Saturday morning could be pretty horrible with everything washed up from the end of everybody else's week and it's still ongoing. You have that issue. That, that's with the US. And in fact, when you're speaking to the US, they're always on the previous day. My son's working in LA and I think he's five hours ahead yesterday. Yeah. That's what I mean. So that means on Saturday, they're still working and on Monday, they're on Sunday. So by default, you have that issue that John was talking about. What about, we're talking about geographical location and time location within the day. What about that creating a culture that where everyone knows that they're a QB employee and that that means something? And that also that means that they can talk to other people in the QB around the world. Yeah, I must have found the core QB culture very, very positive. We've put a lot of thought into it over the past few years. Core culture is great. There's obviously national variances, depending on whether you're sitting in Australia, here in Europe, or in the US. Core culture, good. One of being very open, transparent, good communication, supporting each other. And one of the things that really attracted me to QBE, Mark, was the QBE DNA, which are these seven facets of how we are going to interact and operate with ourselves and with external people. And we truly live them, which I think is fantastic. So I, I love the culture at the company. Another thing I picked up from your results was a mention of this enterprise culture. Can you run us through what that is? Presumably it's sort of people wanting to really own their P&Ls, sort of be incentivized and feel responsible for what they're doing. Yeah, so one of the key strategic priorities, which is one I chose to lead, is bringing the enterprise together, which is this idea of sharing ideas better, helping people problem solve. And we've set up a number of things, not only in leadership groups, which we have across the enterprise and get them together every now and then, but Sam Harris, our chief underwriting officer, rather than having three divisional CEOs who talk to each other, chief underwriting officers talk to each other, we also have financial lines in the US talking to financial lines in the UK or financial lines in Australia, financial lines throughout Europe. So a product committee where all people are talking to each other because a lot of the issues start at some part in the world, often in the US, and then they spread around the rest of the world. So it makes complete sense that people who are writing property or financial lines would talk to each other. So we've got many more cross-business initiatives and groups working. And that is then leveraging the expertise of the enterprise. So I'm keen on that. There's no manual to do it. I'm not forcing people to do it. It just seems like a sensible thing to do. And one of the things I found exciting and frustrating is you know, broker APIs, trying to deal with brokers better. I found there's a great group of people doing it in New Zealand, a great group of people doing it in Australia, a great group of people are doing it in Stafford in the UK. Some people thinking about it in the US. And can't we just all talk together about it? Because chances are all trying to achieve the same thing. So we have great ideas. We're just not making the most of them. So that's what I'm trying to get out of the 11,500, 12,000 people we've got. So it's more of a social thing, or are there business structures, actual financial incentives in there? Because it's quite hard to do those. No, but... so it's a mindset. You're right. It's exactly a mindset. But what we have done in 2022 is changed the comp system completely, the compensation system completely, where everybody is rewarded on how the group does. So everybody has an element of how the group does. Then you, if you're in a division, have an element of how the division does. And then if you're an underwriting team, you have an element of how the underwriting team does both financial and non-financial. And you also get rewarded on not just what you do, but how you go about it. So we've changed that in one year. And it seems to be going down well, although everybody's being told what their bonuses are this week. So if I'm sitting at QB by myself next week, I know it didn't work quite as well as I thought. There's a genuine incentive. If you can cross-pollinate a good idea across QB, then you might actually benefit from that financially as well. Yeah, exactly right.
Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, some of these things, it's nice to talk, but it's also nice to get paid for propagating good practice. Yeah. yeah, most people want to interact with their colleagues so and are quite excited about doing it. And other people like being called and trying to help others out. So I think that's part of the core culture. So it doesn't need the financial element. I think generally it, it would happen. And what about your previous job? It was a, a smaller company, but it was probably more focused, certainly geographically. What do you bring from that smaller company culture that you can bring to QBE? So I would like to bring the consistency, because it's a very consistent company, the culture set up by Andrew with a fantastic culture back in 86, and it maintained it as it grew from two people to, it was 1600 when I left. I'm sure it's considerably more than that. Sharing things, so very good at sharing things, and speed of decision-making. Now, I think generally what I found at QB, many of those things we are as good, if not better at. But with 11,500, 12,000 people, it can just take longer. So I'm really trying to get the organization to move quickly. And I feel we've moved pretty quickly, launching the new vision, purpose, and priorities last year, actually starting to implement them over the past year, changing the comp system. So we've done quite a lot of things quickly. And we have one of our DNA attributes, which I think is a really bold thing to do, is fast-paced. And it'd be really easy to say, we're not fast-paced, let's just pretend it doesn't exist, and we'll shrink our DNA attributes from seven to six. And I really want to live that. If we put fast-paced out, it's a bold thing to say about any insurance company, because it's not deemed the quickest industry on the planet, but let's actually live it. And let's ensure we can clear out bureaucracy, challenging decision-making, ensure people are empowered. We've got good people, so let's ensure they're empowered and willing to take that empowerment. So I'm very focused on that. So a combination of things from previous role, but also adding it in my new role. You sound like you absolutely mean it, Andrew. So yeah, I do mean it. I do, no, I do mean it. <laughs> I mean it as well. Yeah. You're saying a faster pace. So we expect to see more of that type of innovation for which yeah. your previous company was known. Well known. It's almost, what are they coming out with next? You know, that kind of thing. I hope so. I mean, interestingly, the organization has been very innovative. We're really innovative on our renewables book and other things where we've had core expertise. So we are innovative. It's just how do we make the most of those pockets of innovation and apply them more broadly across the organization? So the vision, just touch on the vision, it's to be the most consistent and innovative risk partner. And they're consistent because generally insurers aren't consistent in how they deal with the people, how they deal with clients and brokers, appetite and so on. So we really focused on consistency. I must have used the word consistency thousands of times in 2022. Want to now move on to the innovation. We have been very innovative. It's been in pockets. We've got a great QBE ventures arm where we invest in a lot of innovative companies. And we're trying to use that more across the organization rather than being sitting in little bits. So I think the opportunity for us to be innovative is there. And again, as you're trying to really bring this global business together, presumably now in this digital world and the sort of businesses that QB Ventures have been, you know, there's all those insurtech ventures that you've been collaborating with and investing in. Are you excited about the prospect for this sort of unifying moment where a lot of this data can actually start to flow and actually be used and properly analysed to create the new products of the future and all sorts of things? I am, Mark, but we already have quite a lot of data that we could use more anyway. So there's no point in having brilliant data if no one actually uses it. So I do like the idea of the digitization and getting access to more data and enhancing underwriting and claims decisions and all that stuff. But I also want to make sure we're using the current data we've got. And a lot of companies don't use the current data they've got. Yeah, obviously, you've yeah. got a huge amount. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's right. So I want to focus on that as well as digitization and getting more data. So that's going to be, again, a focus moving quickly to get all that data accessible. You've got global data. Yes, we've got it. We've got a lot of information about how our trading, how we're performing by line of business. We have this sell review process that I didn't put in place, but was put in place years before me. We're enhancing that. 
just come from a cell review where we look at a number of businesses and it's not the businesses that aren't performing as well. Some of the businesses are performing really well and how do we actually grow them more? So how do we give them resource and energy and insight into growing things more? So we already have quite a lot of data. So I want to ensure we use that as much as possible. I think too many companies are thinking through adding more data when they're not even getting the most out of what they've currently got. And the focus here has been, let's do both. Yeah, because obviously there's third-party data being generated all the time as yeah, well that you can access, you can license. You can you know, fill up whatever you can fill up. I'm not sure we fill up anymore with data because it's, it's moved from warehouses to lakes to something else. But you can collect so much stuff and then still not be able to use it. Yeah, I suppose it'd be oceans of data. Yeah, exactly. Oceans, yeah, we moved out of lakes. Yeah, lakes, are too, <laughs> lakes are too small, aren't they? Absolutely. But I suppose, yes, we'll see more analytical data scientist type people wandering around QBE buildings. Do you expect? Yeah, no, I hope so. But what I want to focus on is the inefficiency, data to one side, inefficiency in the process. Because the process of trading insurance is so inefficient and expensive. So I'm also keen to focus on that. And we have our modernization initiative, which is simply trying to make us easier to do business with everybody externally and easier to do business with ourselves internally. So on that line, are you optimistic? There's obviously a lot of digitization work going on in London. Obviously, you've got a viewpoint from all sorts of markets around the world. Is London leading the way on this, do you think, or, or it's about to be leading the way? I'm more distant from it. And Jason Harris, who runs the international business yeah. here, is much closer he's to it. He's sitting on those but, committees. Yeah, exactly, he is, that's right. Time. So he's much, he's much closer to it than I am. We're really positive about it. I was positive about it previously. I remain very positive about it. I think all of the ideas we've got and trying to implement in London are positive ones. Whether it's leading the way, it'll be great for London and trading in London. I'm sure others around the world are trying to make it as easy to trade with as London will be. Just as QBE is. I mean, we're looking at our Australian business and trying to make ourselves easy to do business in Australia. And that's more peer-to-peer, -peer, I presume. It's more just going to your brokers and making sure you brokers, have APIs exactly. and you know, gateways and things and so that you can all see in real time what's happening yeah, without having to think about it. I'm working it. with them, working with brokers on how to make it easier for them. Yes, what do you think I mean, the end game would be that we end up with an almost frictionless insurance transaction? Yeah, that can't be beyond us, can it? Because it happens in many other financial products and we are the last bastion of having friction in it. The perfectly good excuse is there's a lot of things aren't necessarily standardised, we're all rightly regulated and everything else. And obviously, you know, it's not like buying and selling QBE shares, which are all identical to each other. No two policies seem to be quite the same. Yeah, we play too much on the differences, Mark, <laughs> when there's a lot more similarities between various lines of business and various geographies than there are differences. Yeah, you're right. And I think derivatives contracts are pretty complicated, exactly, aren't they? But right, they seem to, be, they seem they to have found a way of standardising and, and making them process you know, at the flick of a switch. Yep, I agree. Personally, what's it been like? It's been a big upheaval, hasn't it? I mean, to go out to Australia, change your life, and what's it been like? Yeah, I didn't necessarily expect it to happen so relatively late on in my career. So my wife, Sophie, and I have moved to Australia, to Sydney. Our children are grown up. Sydney's a great place to live. Australia's been incredibly welcoming. It's difficult to say anything negative about it because it's uh, just such a fantastic place to be and a good place to be at this point in time. And you're not having to travel in the way that some of your predecessors might have. That's right. I think, again, with the technology, we've just got used to it, haven't we, during the COVID years, not to need to travel. And also we've got the environmental impacts of it and therefore focused on that. So I don't think I'm traveling as much as my predecessors did. I am still going around the QBE world, and I'm focusing on doing one-month trips at a time. So two weeks in the UK, Europe, two weeks in the US, and then go back to Sydney or the other way around. And that seems to work well because I can get into the time zone of where I'm going. I can immerse myself in the business where I've actually turned up 
rather than doing really short, sharp trips and keep having to fly back and forth from Sydney, which is quite a long way away from UK and US. And which way around the world is the best way to go then? Everybody has a view of which way <laughs> which way avoids jet lag. I haven't got that view. I think it's a challenge going either way. The time difference is ultimately the same, isn't it? It doesn't mean it's any different. <laughs> well, it I'm, takes I'm, a I'm day longer way. one way, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. When you fly back from LA, you lose a day. As you're flying around the world and visiting different parts of QBE and different outposts that you've got, where are you most excited about the prospects for growth or implanting new lines in, in markets you're in or you know, transplanting different QBE product from one place to another? 23, 24, where's all the big growth coming from? The beauty is we're growing in all the three divisions. So it's not as though there's one opportunity for growth than, than others. Each of the divisions have got good growth plans and from a different position. We have a position of strength in Australia with a good SME market share compared with our competitors and continue to build on that, both in Australia and New Zealand. Here in Europe, we've got a number of countries. We're trying to grow in continental Europe more, but we have a great regional UK business, which has shown a lot of growth over the past few years. And in North America, we're relatively small in a massive market. So they've all got different opportunities depending on what they are. So I'm quite excited we can grow in each of the three divisions, especially in 23 when the markets are still in pretty good shape from a rating point of view. So you're not just looking at one star product or anything? No, you not, know. not at all. No, I would like to add things which are complementary to what we do. So picking up the point of can we lift something out of one division and put it in another? We are going to look at cyber. It's been a question that's been asked of me a lot in my 18 months from investors. Well, of you, when we're going to look at you have a certain amount of expertise in that class. Perhaps so. I'm sure some people say I have very little expertise <laughs> in that class. Yeah, so we're going to look at that. That must be a growth opportunity for us. We have a reasonable sized book in the US at the moment. We have a book in London as well. We have very little elsewhere within the QBE world. We need to look at it on a global basis. So we're going to pull together a cyber product that spans the three divisions. And the division CEOs are quite excited about that. So that's definitely a great opportunity for us because I think to be a major insurer, and we are a major insurer in property, casualty, and liability, we have to have a cyber offering. When I talk to people, we talk about parametric a lot. We talk about embedded. When I talk to the more techy-ended end of the marketplace, again, any of those particular things, are they making you excited in any sense? Everything to do with insurance makes me excited in every sense. Yeah, embedded to some extent. Parametric, we're not really looking at, but embedded. Embedded is something most insurers do to some extent, and we could do more of it. What about parametric as a reinsurance product? Yes, no, to, I, understand, I understand. Yes, I don't think we bought parametric as a reinsurance product so far. Going back to that, the holistic, the world of insurance is in a pretty good place. Would you say is that? Am, am I, I putting think it too is. many words in your mouth there? No, I think it is in a pretty good place. And if we can think about modernising while it's in a good place, it puts us in a good stead when it's not in such a good place from a rating and pricing point of view. So now is the time to really motor on that. Fix the roof while the sun's shining. Yeah, definitely. And, and people always talk about it, but generally we haven't. No, they tend to do it when gross premium starts to wane. I know, I know. So I think we're well underway on that. I think I've run through everything we we're going to talk about. You're always so concise and to the point. Sorry, Andrew. should I waffle a bit more? Yes, well, yes you should. because then, like, kind of, Is it going to be well, too I, short? How long has it got to be? It's never too short or too long, as far as I'm okay, concerned. Fine. But I think we've got time for you to give us a bit of a summary of where QBE is and where you want it to be in the next couple of years. What would be your parting shot to anyone listening? If we look over the past 12 months, Mark, one of the things I'm proud about is launching a new purpose, enabling a more resilient future, the vision being consistent and innovative as far as being a risk partner, and then the six key priorities, which are around people, culture, portfolio optimization, so ensuring we've got a good balance in the portfolio, Growth, so being structured in growth, looking at how we can grow the core, add complementary products to that, and then think about new things that we could add to it. Modernization, 
And it's not purely technology. It's not purely using technology, but how do we actually simplify the process, simplify the products? We've done some great work in one of our divisions where we've dropped about 140 products where we didn't really need them. Rather than migrate those from one system to another, it really shrinks what we need to do when we improve technology. And modernization, people think in terms of tech. But if you've got a poor process and just put it on new technology, it's still a poor process. So we're focused on that. And then the final one, which sort of touched on bringing the enterprise together, leveraging the skills of the organization. So I'm keen for the business to continue to focus on those six because I think they can really add value to the overall performance of the organization, not purely financial performance, but how brokers perceive us and how our customers perceive us and how our people perceive us. So keen to keep going on those. And I think that's gone down well within the organization because generally QB has changed its strategy and vision more frequently than I intend to going forward. And therefore, people aren't really sure what we've stood for as a group, as a division, they understood it. But as a group, what are we other than purely the addition of three divisions? So I'm trying to change that. Sounds like there's a lot of runway. What's the limit? The aim with the six strategic priorities is they become business as usual. So portfolio optimization is just a natural thing to do. Sharing information within the organization is a natural thing to do. So at some point, they become embedded within the organization, and we think of other things we should focus on. So it's sort of you're modernizing QBE and its systems and its people, I suppose, yeah. in some ways. You can't modernize people, but you can kind of... But change the way they're thinking, change their mindset into thinking slightly differently. And people are really responsive to it. I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of people within the QBE world, which is good. And I'm open to ideas from everybody. And people are very, very generous in telling me in the lift what we should be doing, to sending me emails, to anonymous notes, to absolutely everything. So people have been very generous with their ideas. Almost all of them great. Haven't found any brown envelopes in this no, no, room exactly. yet, but I'm sure with a little green ink on the note. But Andrew, thank you so much for spending some time and I hope we'll book you in at some point in the future for an update. Uh, Mark, I would look forward to that. Good speaking to you. Thanks a lot. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.